Cassie Farron. Uh, Alex and I lead this church community together. Uh, so you'll see uh, us kind of rotating on and off preaching, as well as Amanda, who's part of our preaching team, and Justin, too, who's going to be helping us out during our sermon series in Colossians. And so we're really excited. We actually just started this sermon series last week for Easter, and I'm really stoked to be getting to teach it today because Colossians is a really unique letter. It's a letter written by Paul to a new church in the town of Colossae that's being pastored by a new pastor named Ephras. And, you know, I really love this because we are a relatively new church. We've been open for about nine months now, and I am relatively new in my role as a lead pastor of this church. So I almost feel like the letter of Colossians could be written to me, could be written to you, could be written to this church community as we share some similarities with the church of Colossae as a new church plant. Paul actually starts this letter with the Colossian peoples that he's writing to in verses 1 through 23, where he establishes that Christ is the exalted Messiah. And he does that through a really beautiful poem that Alex walked us through last week that essentially says this, Christ was present and was involved in the creation of the world. He's bringing about a new creation with his death and then resurrection. And he's bringing about a new creation specifically within Colossae through this new church. And so after building this really strong foundation on Christ, Paul then works to give us a thesis statement for his whole letter, which is where we find ourselves today. And this thesis statement essentially states that the purpose of his whole letter is spiritual maturity. That's what he wants the Colossian people to get to. Uh, you know, as a millennial, I frequently uh, hear some of the following phrases about my immaturity, my lack of maturity. And I don't know if you've heard these at all before, uh, but kids these days just don't have the same work ethic that we did. Has anybody heard that or maybe said that? Okay, yeah. Kids these days don't have the same worth ethic that we did, as we did. Uh, youth are lazy and self-indulgent. Sometimes I feel this way about my students in my public speaking classes. I'm like, oh. Oh my goodness, come on, get your assignments in, right? Or uh, they only want to work jobs that are prestigious or that they get paid really well in. Or they don't seem to value hard work. Or all young people nowadays seem to live with their parents, yeah? Being that stereotypical millennial or Gen Z that goes back to the home. Or young people just don't want to grow up. Uh, there's actually a relatively new term that describes this phenomenon, and it's called failure to launch. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that before, but there have been lots of books written on failure to launch, and failure to launch is essentially this idea that as young people, we have not launched into our future, me as a millennial, I have not launched into my future the same way my previous generations have. Uh, there's actually a developmental stage that theorists have proposed adding to the growth continuum called emerging adulthood. So we're not quite ready to move from adolescence into adulthood, so we're going to emerge slowly, right? 
And I can somewhat uh, relate to this. Uh, you know, I myself obviously am a millennial. And although I left home at 18 and had not lived with my parents for over 10 years, when Alex and I uh, were choosing to move to Kansas City from Springfield, Missouri back in the summer of 2020, we ended up moving in with my in-laws who live in Lenexa, Kansas for two and a half months. And I joked I was like finally doing that millennial thing of moving in with my parents. Uh, similarly, you know, with the recession that happened in 2008, the, the housing shortages that we're seeing across the industry, the supply shortages that we're experiencing when it comes to building and construction, Alex and I are still renting. We have not bought a home. We have not made that step yet, right? And so very much I can identify with this emerging adulthood. I'm like, I don't have the house yet with the white picket fence and the dog, okay? I may be almost 30, but I'm not there yet. Uh, and you know, I think a lot of people can identify with this. And I've actually got a couple examples, a couple of stories that I want to share with you today. Specifically, uh, these stories come from a set of interviews that were conducted uh, with college students throughout their four years of college as they approach senior year. So here's some stories. Meet Dylan. Dylan just completed his freshman year of college, and upon reflecting on his experience, he says, I feel a lot of mixed emotions. I don't know where, what I'm doing, I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know what I'll do tomorrow. Hallelujah, Jesus, me neither, okay? I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. His friend Gary, he felt really similar when he reflected on his experience in his first year of college and thinking about the friendships that he had developed. He said, I don't actually have a tremendous number of very close friends here. Matter of fact, you could say I have three, and I see people all the time. I just expected that I would have more friendships emerging from a larger university. Uh, frequently, uh, Alex makes a joke at our dinner party. There's a meme that circulated. You may have seen it. Uh, the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did was he had 12 friends at the age of 30, right? This idea that sometimes it's like, man, where are all my friends? How do I make friends? Where did those go? Uh, similarly, uh, when Dylan's friend Mike was commenting on the mental health crisis he was experiencing and witnessing on campus, he said, he relayed this story. He says, it's really hard not to get caught up in the rat race. I mean, kids really get to the point of exhaustion during exam period. A lot of my friends, believe it or not, have intestinal troubles during exam periods. I have a friend who now works at the University Health Services as a psychologist, and she called me up one semester asking what in the world Chem 20 was. I let her know it was a class that had a lot of pressure, and she said the day after the Chem 20 final, there were so many students that got admitted to the university hospital system due to intestinal problems and nervous disorders, they had to take the overflow to a local hospital down the road. Yeah. By junior year, though, many of these college students, when they were interviewed, things were starting to look up, right? They're starting to make sense of their experience. They're like, okay, you know, I've gone through some trials, but I'm looking forward to feeling established. I finally got some friends. I know how to do this college thing, right? I'm looking forward to senior year. And then senior year, right? Senior year hits, and if any of you have gone to school or college, you know senior year is simultaneously the worst and also the best, because for the first time in your life, you don't have an obvious next step. It's like, oh shoot, what am I going to do with my life, right? What happens after college? College student Judith remembers her classmates feeling sort of pessimistic and cynical about everything when they started thinking about their chances of getting a job. Her classmate Gary summarized his experience and said, you know, you start to panic when you think you have to decide everything at once. 
My feeling is that professionalism is becoming more and more of a suffocating type of thing that not just people in college experience, but even those in high school and junior high. As a college professor, uh, a lot of these things, these stories sound familiar to me, as many of my UMKC students may have said them to me yesterday. However, it's really interesting to note that almost every, well, every single one of these stories that I just gave you actually came from the graduating class of 1975 at Harvard University. Here's the big idea. All of these interviews, all of this research was put into a book, and it's called, uh, oh, what is the title? Oh, here it is, The End of Adolescence, The Lost Art of Delaying Adolescence by Nancy E. Hill and Alexis Redding. And the whole, whole purpose of this book is essentially to argue that there is no new developmental period of emerging adulthood. And that the notion that kids these days are worse than those previous or are different than those in the past is wrong. Instead, this phenomenon is experienced by all youth across all the generations. So here's the big idea. No matter whether you are a millennial, a Gen Zer, a Gen X, or a baby boomer, growth is just really hard. And sometimes really, really, really uncomfortable. You know, I think the same can be said regarding spiritual growth as physical growth. Spiritual growth can be really, really hard. But before I kind of make that comparison, I want to take just a little bit of time to define what spiritual growth is. You know, usually when we hear someone talk about growing in their spiritual walk, we think of like them sitting down and reading like three chapters of the Bible a day, right? Or going and praying like without ceasing, whatever that means, right? Or maybe they go and they start fasting more, right? And spending time without eating food to pray more or to read the Bible. And although these spiritual practices, all of these things are really good and they actually are a means to become more spiritually mature, the spiritual practices in and of themselves are not the destination. Excuse me, they're not the, yeah, they're not the final destination. I said that right. Uh, in fact, these things that get us to spiritual maturity ultimately help us do what? Look more like Jesus. That's why when Paul is writing his letter, he establishes in verses 1 through 23, Christ right? Christ as the Messiah, because Christ is the foundation of spiritual maturity. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Therefore, spiritual maturity or being established in the faith, right? The having that foundation is walking in Jesus or being rooted in him. It's thinking, acting, being like him. Dallas Willard puts it this way, spiritual maturity is effortlessly looking like Jesus. The moment when you don't have to think about it anymore. That's why at Midtown Church, our kingdom value of intentional formation is defined as our stories aligning with Jesus' stories. It's that idea that we want our entire lives, our work life, our social life, our family life, all of those things to align with the life of Jesus. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. 
So back to our developmental growth stages. So I think there's a lot of similarity between the way in which we grow physically and the way in which we grow spiritually. In fact, there's a pastor named John Tyson out of New York City that actually gives us some developmental stages that are pertain to our physical growth, but also help us understand our spiritual growth. We're going to take some time to walk through these four, understand how they work in our everyday life, but then also how they pertain to our spiritual growth. So here are the four. The infant stage or the consumer stage. Number two, the child or certainty stage. Number three, the adolescent or challenge stage. And finally, number four, the adulthood or contribution stage. So those are our three stages. So first one, infant stage. Young parents in the room, because I know I've got several of you. What did your baby do for you this week? Did they do the dishes for you when you got home? Did they clean up after themselves? Did they wipe the snot off of their nose, the milk from their mouth? No, they did not. Although several of you wish you could train your baby to do that. Yeah? Babies are quite literally the definition of what it means to consume. They give you absolutely nothing. They are completely reliant upon you, right? For those of you who volunteer sometimes in our kids that are in the room, our kids' church in the room, you know that kids ask about 10 questions all at one time, right? There's never like one question at a time, or there's never like a lesson that they'll go through without 5 million questions about who Jesus is or the Bible is, let alone, you know, what they're going to eat for lunch that day, or how the world works, or why the sky is blue. And that's because kids during that child stage are working to establish what we call certainty, right? They're interpreting the world. They're thinking about the way the world works, what certain things mean. And to become a fully developed child, you have to have a certain level of certainty that acts as a foundation for you to interpret the world moving forward. And then we move on to the adolescent stage. And for my more seasoned parents in the room, you know that that is a stage filled with challenge, right? I tell my teen to do one thing, and they go and do the opposite. There is never a moment in which I ask them to do something that they actually do the thing that I asked, right? It's this moment where you begin challenging the things that you knew to be certain in childhood. Where you start going against the grain, right? Beginning to come into your own developing your own set of beliefs and ideas. And then you move into that adulthood stage, okay? The stage of adulthood. And in this stage, theoretically, here's what should be happening. We should be contributing or giving back to others to help them grow. That We do that through community investment, right? Contributing to our workplaces, providing services, Parenting, parenting is all about giving away, right? Contribution. Or even through mentorship, right? Bringing someone alongside of you, teaching them what you know. We all know adults who do not choose contribution, and instead they choose selfishness, right? So this is the parent, which, hey, to a certain degree, we all make this decision sometimes. But this is the parent, right, that does not give of their time to their kid and expends, instead gives all of their time to their work, right? This is the boss that cares more about the bottom line and making money than they do investing in their employees. It's that lack of contribution. 
And as I explained in my introduction, that successful transition from adolescence into adulthood is one of the hardest transitions of all. It is where we feel the most pain. And just as that is a pain point in our physical growth, I think it's also a pain point in our spiritual growth. I hear this frequently, or this is articulated, this concept, when I hear someone say, I just don't feel like I'm spiritually growing anymore. Or I can't feel God anymore. Or it just doesn't feel like it used to with my relationship with Jesus. See, when we come to faith, when we're in that infant stage, right, it's all about consuming. How much of Jesus can I get? How much Bible can I read, right? I'm praying all the time. I just love talking to the Lord. I'm telling my friends about Jesus. I want to read all these books. I'm so excited about the relationship I am in with Jesus. Then we move to that child stage where we begin building that foundation of certainty, where our questions are answered, right? We hold beliefs, values. We realize the certainties of our faith in life. And then we get to our adolescent stage in faith. And we start questioning everything we know, right? We start doubting those things that we were told to be certain in our child stage of faith. We begin wondering why we just believed that all along. We begin doubting, maybe feeling isolated, like we're all alone. Or maybe we're just longing for that certainty again, right? Why can't it be simple like it was before, like when I was a kid? And so many times, instead of moving into that adult stage of actually investing in others and helping others move into spiritual maturity, we just kind of get stuck in adolescence. And here's why. The transition from spiritual adolescence into spiritual adulthood is one of the hardest transitions of all. Because in the midst of that questioning, in the midst of that doubt, the last thing you want to do is to start investing in somebody else. But just like those developmental stages from adolescence into adulthood are really, really hard, they are necessary. And I believe that difficult transition from spiritual adolescence into spiritual adulthood is necessary to move closer to Jesus Christ. See, we actually have to start journeying inward, revealing those festering wounds, answering those questions, voicing those doubts, realizing our uncertainties, and all of that pain that resides in our hearts in order to move into that adult stage. You know, in our passage today, Paul actually takes some time to set up this desire for the Colossae people, that they move from spiritual adolescence into spiritual adulthood. He says, picking up in verse 28, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, full spiritual maturity, spiritual adulthood. For this I toil and struggle with all Jesus's energy that he powerfully works within me. Picking up in chapter two, verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so as you have gotten Jesus, as you've chosen to follow him, if you have made that certain decision to follow Jesus, now you need to walk in him. Here comes that adulthood. You need to be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his translation called The Message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic Christ. No more, no less. That's our definition of spiritual maturity, to be Christ. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You received Christ Jesus, the master. Now you have to start living in him. In other words, the main idea of Paul's whole letter to the Colossian church is this. Grow in your spiritual maturity and live out what you have learned about Jesus. Paul wants these people to experience full adult maturity in Christ. If I had to guess, the reason why Paul spends then an entire letter talking to the Colossian people about spiritual maturity, it is because he knows this transition is really hard. That moving from a place of certainty, questioning all of those things into a space of investing in others with my life and looking more like Jesus is hard. That's why we have decided all that entire thing was an introduction to say we've decided as a church that we are going to commit ourselves to learning what it is like to become fully spiritually mature in Christ through our series in Colossians. That's the focus of this entire series over the next couple months. But before I end today, I do think Paul gives us a couple things, a few nuggets of wisdom, even within this beginning passage of Colossians, that begin to help us or set us up for making that journey into spiritual maturity. So three things, okay? First one is this. Studying Jesus' teachings is central to spiritual maturity. Paul says, starting in verse 25b, I became a minister in the church to make the word of God fully known. The mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You'll remember when we were looking at Matthew chapter 7 a couple weeks ago as we were rounding out the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we approached this passage, and we're talking about true versus false teachers, where the terminology used by Jesus was the will of my Father. And we talked about how that terminology, which is used throughout the scriptures, specifically even within Jesus's teachings, is the same term used for word in John chapter 1 and throughout Jesus's ministry. Another example can be found in John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Same thing that we're using here for will of my father and word fully know. He will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make his home within him. We see this verbiage used here in Colossians 25b. To illustrate the fact, make the word of God fully known, that Jesus's teachings are being fully made known by Paul. Paul 
Paul here is supposed to be the example of spiritual maturity for this Colossian church. You can think of him almost as like an elder, right? And so he's saying here, I myself devote myself to the teachings of Jesus. And then I work to teach those to you. So as an example of spiritual maturity, I am telling you to devote yourselves to Jesus's teaching. For Paul, there's an unbreakable connection, like a symbiotic relationship between knowing Jesus' teachings and being spiritually mature in Christ. I don't know of any other way to look, act, and be more like Jesus than to read about who he was and what he did. That's why every single week as microchurches, we gather around Jesus' teachings. That's why we do this here on Sunday morning. That's why we're devoting ourselves to that sermon series on Colossians over the next couple months. And that's why in our personal lives, we work to devote time to reading the teachings of Jesus. Therefore, for those of us who are seeking spiritual maturity, who say, I want to move beyond just that adolescence into adulthood in which I'm able to begin investing in others' maturity, you need to ask yourselves, are you devoting yourself to Jesus's teachings. What does that look like in your daily life? So that first nugget of wisdom that Paul gives us is to devote ourselves to Jesus's teachings as a way to spiritual maturity. The second thing he tells us is that spiritual maturity costs. At the beginning of this letter, Paul actually spends quite a bit of time establishing his credentials or his ethos. I talk about this in public speaking all the time. Uh, It's really important to establish your credibility at the beginning of some sort of public speaking act or even at the beginning of some sort of written work because you need to give your audience a reason to listen, right? And these people that Paul is talking to, the Colossian people, they've actually never met him because Paul's in prison at this point in time. And so they've never actually met this man. So this man is giving them a letter on how to be spiritually mature without ever having met them. So he actually has to take some time to establish why he himself is an authority on this subject, why he can give them advice on becoming spiritually mature in Christ. And what's really interesting about the way he establishes his his credentials is he actually points to his suffering as a means to becoming spiritually mature in Christ. Paul starts uh, in verse 24 saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. In verse 29 he says, For people's spiritual maturity I toil, struggling with all Jesus' energy that he powerfully works within me. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Three times within these 13 verses, Paul mentions his suffering. When we look at Paul's life, broadly speaking, we look at the other epistles, other historical works, we see that Paul suffered a lot. That spiritual maturity cost him. We read in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28, that Paul was whipped on five different occasions, beaten.
beaten with rods on three different occasions, stoned once, shipwrecked three times, was left for dead drifting on the sea, maintained a crazy travel schedule, made dangerous journeys through rivers and the wilderness. He journeyed in lands frequented by robbers. He was hurt by many people who claimed to be his friends. He suffered from insomnia. He had many nights without food or drink and was exposed to the cold. And on top of all of that, had mounting incredible anxiety about his job, which was overseeing all of these new church plants, which man, that must have been exhausting as a church planner. I'm like, I got one. That's all I can do, okay? I think on a certain level, each of us here, if we were being honest with ourselves, we would say, I want to be like Paul or one of those people in the faith, those heroes in the faith that we hear about in scripture. But the reality is, myself included, many of us are not willing to do what it takes to get to that place. We forget all the things that those quote-unquote heroes of the faith had to do to get to a place of spiritual maturity. Many of the times we want spiritual maturity, but we don't want to go through the process that makes, that gets us there. See, to become spiritually mature, we actually face resistance. There's a cost associated with that growth and that maturity, just like there's a cost associated in our developmental growth. See, a cost comes from primarily three different places when it comes to our spiritual maturity. The first one is this, the spiritual forces of darkness and evil. The enemy, the Satan, okay, does not want you moving from one place of spiritual maturity or growth to the next. That's the worst case scenario for him, which is why he sends things like accidents, illness, death, financial difficulties, all of those things your way. He wants you to doubt. He does not want you to move from adolescence into spiritual adulthood. He wants you to stay right where you're at. Because when you move into spiritual adulthood, you actually begin to affect others in the positive. That's the last thing he wants. The other place that resistance comes from is actually the world. See, there's a cost to being mature in an immature world. To forgive someone when they've hurt you is costly. To respond kindly to someone in a petty conversation is costly. To respond in patience instead of anger to your coworker, your spouse, your friend, your child is costly. Those things are not fun. They are not easy. They are the hard way. And finally, resistance when it comes to spiritual maturity actually even comes in the form of our own apathy. Whether it's just simply laziness. Alex uh, jokes he's like an Enneagram 9, so he's always like, oh, my laziness. I'm like, you're fine. Uh, but whether you know, just your natural propensity to like just want to chill and lay back, right? To not do anything. Whether it's the distractions of media, that's me. Oh man, my biggest thing is just being constantly distracted by all the other things that's going around me. Or whether it's just simply like lack of intentionality, right? Just not like intentional about thinking about growing in Christ. All of these things provide resistance to our spiritual maturity. Jesus actually warns us of the cost of spiritual maturity over and over and over again throughout the course of his life. And we see it as he pays the ultimate sacrifice. In Luke 9, 23 specifically, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
In the words of Ron Rollheiser, real transformation does not happen at Disneyland. It happens at Calvary. So the question is, are you going to accept the cost of spiritual maturity? Because it's not always going to be fun. Last thing, if you want spiritual maturity, you have to simply commit to it. Just like graduating from college, moving on to a professional career, getting married, having children, buying a house, buying a condo, planning for retirement, whatever that looks like, all of those things in our physical growth stages require commitment. They require planning. They require some sort of decision along the way, some work and some effort. So does spiritual maturity. It requires a commitment. So the question then becomes, are you committed to becoming more spiritually mature? Like, do you have a vision for your soul or the person that you want to become in Jesus? Do you have an idea of how you want to get there, just like you have an idea of how you want to retire, right? Are you committed to say, I'm going to walk out this path of spiritual maturity towards Christ? Worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and join me. You know, there have been a lot of moments in my life, um, my short life, where I've had to uh, commit but then recommit to this, right? Because a lot of the times uh, there are moments where we commit and we're like all in, and then we find ourselves like waning a little bit, and it's like, oh man, okay, I gotta come back, I gotta recommit. And Alex and I found ourselves there uh, back in, well, it really started in, in 2019, uh, but we really found ourselves there in 2020. So uh, just a little bit of a backstory, Alex and I in 2018 really really felt like God was calling us to plant a church in Kansas City, to start a new church. And uh, he was finishing up his master's, so he finished that up. We were in Springfield, Missouri's, Missouri. We kind of took turns with our master's, and he was finishing up his master's in 2019. And so we began kind of sitting there in that transition point, right? We're in a transitional phase where we both finished where we want to be in our education for the time being, and we're focusing on what's next. So it's that moment where we had to decide, like, okay, are we actually going to do this thing that we felt like God was calling us to do in 2018? So we started to put pen to paper, and we started actually making some plans to move to Kansas City in the summer of 2020. We actually start making monthly trips. We would come down here once a month starting in fall of 2019, all through when the pandemic started in March. And so pandemic hits, right, in March of 2020. We're like two, three months away from moving. We've already talked with our bosses about it. We've got this big plan. We started fundraising, doing all of these things. And a pandemic happens. Enter adolescence, right? We move from certainty, our childhood certainty, and what God had called us to do, and then enters all the questions, like all the doubt. Like, what in the world was I thinking? This was already a crazy idea to start with, and now it seems impossible. And so we're in that moment of doubt and questioning and discouragement, and we decide, okay, we're going to take two weeks. We're going to fast and pray. We're just going to see what happens. We're going we're gonna to be open to sacrificing the stream, saying we heard wrong, this isn't right, or we need to delay it. But we're also going to be open to say, like, okay, God, if this is really what you want us to do, you're going to have to show up. You're going to have to speak to us. And within the first couple of days, uh, Alex and I really both felt like we had heard clearly from the Lord. And we heard two different things. The Lord speaks to Alex and I very differently, uh, and that has will never change. Uh, but he said to Alex, he said, how dare you claim to love a city and you're not willing to suffer with it? 
And for me, he said, Cassie, I'm building this church, not you. All you have to do is have courage and faith to follow me. And it was that moment where Alex and I had to say, okay, we are going to commit to what you've called us to do then, Jesus. We're going to recommit to that. And I'd love to say that at that moment of commitment, everything just like synced into place. Like it was wonderful and it was perfect. And we went on and we built this amazing church and it was amazing. And, you know, God provided in all the ways. And he did, you know. But here's the thing. There were a lot of moments of doubt. There were several moments where we would look at our bank account and say, are we going to make it to the next month? Oh, dear God. There are a lot of moments that we would plan an event that we thought was going to be great, and then no one would show up, and I'm like, oh, what are we doing, right? This is not working. Maybe we just need to give up. But here's the deal. Through all of those discouraging moments, and there were so many of them, just being real and honest, during all of those moments, you know what kept us going? That commitment. Every time we said, we're going to give up. We can't do this anymore. I'm done. It's not worth it. We would look back to that moment that we had in March of 2020 and we say, no, we have to keep moving forward. God told us that we'd have to be willing to suffer with the city. And he told us that he was going to build this church. Lord, help me have the faith and the courage to keep moving forward. And here's the thing. I think it's those moments of commitment where we actually say, today I make an intentional decision to move forward in this area of my life, that's the moment that gets us through all of the cost, all of the resistance that comes our way. For Paul, that moment for him was that incredible moment he had on the road to Emmaus, right? Or excuse me, not the road to Emmaus. Yes, it was. It was? No, it wasn't. I got that road wrong. What road was it? can't remember. Who cares what the name of the road is? And when he was on the road, right? And Jesus came to him and he spoke to him so clearly. And he said, I am going to build my church through you, right? That's the moment that kept Paul going through the shipwrecks, through the depression, through the hunger, through the cold, through the betrayal of friends, through the anxiety of his work. That's the moment that kept him going. So for each of us, I think it's a moment. As we start this series in Colossians, it's a moment to say, am I going to commit? Am I going to commit through the next two months to say, Lord, I want to grow in my spiritual maturity and whatever that looks like, help me to look back on this moment and say, God, I know you're going to get me through it. Just this morning, I was praying and asking God, okay, what spaces in my life do I need to grow in spiritual maturity? And he pretty quickly convicted me about my need to feel like I was performing all the time. It's like, okay, God, right here in this moment, I'm going to write it down so I don't forget. I feel like you're calling me to commit to growing in my authenticity. In my need to not find security in people's ideas of how I perform or I don't perform, but simply to find it in you. So I don't know what that looks like for you today. But I do want this to be a space for us as a church community to say, okay, God, what today are you asking me to commit to in my spiritual growth? And in commitment to that moment, that's the thing I want you to ingrain in your memory. So when it gets tough in the upcoming weeks and months, when you're feeling that temptation to just go back into laziness or apathy, to lack intention, 
or to not continue to push forward through all of that junk that sits in our heart. You can be reminded of what Jesus told you and what he was calling you to. As Paul says, I desire full spiritual maturity. weekly podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.